Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome. Uh, This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history, its present and possible future. Uh, My name's uh, Stephen Fielding. I'm Emeritus Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham. And my co-presenter is Professor Laura Beers, uh, Professor of History at the American University in Washington. So, hello, Laura. Hello, Steve. I hope things uh, are okay with you over there. (laughs) They are. Dark times here, but they are. (laughs) It's dark everywhere. It's dark everywhere. Um... But what we want to do today is is enlighten um, people about the 1924 Labour government. Um, Our listener might have noticed that the centenary of the formation of that government has recently passed. Um, The Labour Party has even made something of it, unusually for the Labour Party, taking a bit of an interest in its own history. But we want to talk today uh, with David Torrance, who has written... Uh, the Wild Men, a book which I suspect our listener has in fact heard of because it's been widely reviewed and highly complimentary uh, reviews they've all been. Um, very, very positive. Um, so David David wrote, wrote um, an account of, of this government. He's currently a constitutional expert at the House of Commons Library. He's written more books. I mean, I, when I saw how many books David had written, um, I was quite, um, I was just annoyed frankly um um most not all about scottish uh, national politics but certainly um his probably best work best known uh, book certainly as far as i'm concerned are his biographies of nicholas sturgeon and alex salmond so so david welcome hello hello and um first i think the first question is why why have you written this book about the first labor government i i think because um, I have a predilection for sort of misunderstood or little understood episodes in British political history uh, and aspects of political history which I think are either mythologized or not fully explored. Also, um, as a former journalist, I've always 
liked anniversary hooks for projects, whether that's uh, research in my current uh, role as a, as a journalist for, for columns and news stories. And I, I think I still think in those terms. So I had the centenary of the formation of the first Labour government in my head for the past few years, but it took a bit longer for that to crystallise into a definite idea of what I wanted to do. So initially, as I thrashed out ideas with my agents, it was going to be a full-scale biography of Ramsay MacDonald. So the, the first since uh, David Marquin's uh, superb uh, work in, in the year I was born in 1977. So it was quite a long time ago. Then I thought about a biography of the year 1924, something I've always uh, been quite keen on doing. But as we were throwing around ideas, my agent spotted a uh, a quote in one of my pitches, which was a Conservative MP writing to the Times in early 1924, complaining about the Labour Party, and he refers to the wild men. And my agent said, that's your title. <laughs> that's your title. Focus the book on the first Labour government and take a biographical approach. And I thought, yeah, that's 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 blindingly obvious in retrospect. That That's what we'll do. I mean, certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm meant to be a Labour Party historian, but my main focus is on the Second World War and beyond. And I mean, my knowledge of that government, um, the election which led to it is, is was not not now. I've read your book. It's really great. Um, was very, very shamefully limited. Um, and I've, I always like to go and have a look at what YouGov does with Labour Party leaders, what it discovers, what Labour members think about Labour Party leaders. And Ramsay MacDonald, at least in 2020, was one of the least known. And nearly half of all Labour members said they couldn't have a favourable or an unfavourable uh, notion because they just didn't know anything about him. So hopefully by, you know, this, this will kind of educate people about about this this time and, and that, that Prime Minister. Um, but what kind of a party was the Labour Party? I mean, if we can talk about the the election, because the election, the nineteen twenty three election, the one that led to the the formation of the government, I mean that's a hundred years ago. Um, is it any in any way, shape, or form sort of comparable with 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 a Labour Party that we might might be familiar with? I think some aspects are are recognisable. The the tension, which is a major theme of the book, between the the radical left, which in in the early twenties centred around the independent Labour Party, which, as I think most Labour historically-minded Labour people will know, was a separate party, but affiliated to the, to the Labour Party, but technically separate, a bit like the Cooperative Party. Um, the tension between them, mainly Clydeside MPs in Scotland and those from sort of East London, Poplar and all of that, and the, the sort of more moderate Fabian intellectual party leadership whose focus was much more on uh, getting into government, increasing support for the party. So I think that part is is wholly recognisable a hundred years later. Um, in terms of the party in Parliament and the broader movement, it was the broader movement was obviously much larger in in trade union terms. Trade union leaders in the twenties, intriguingly, were were seen as conservative figures. Uh, they they were they were quite moderate, which of course differs from uh, the dominant perception now. I think, um, and the three main groupings which several contemporary analysts identify are the ILP, as I say, generally radical left wingers, um, 
the Fabians intellectuals and what's called the trade union element. And of course, a lot of the ministers in that first government had risen up through the trade trade union ranks. And indeed, several of them were, were general secretaries of their respective unions uh, by that point in early 1924 when they're being appointed ministers. Contrary to Steve, actually, I feel like often 1924 seems more real to me than much of the intervening period. I'm sort of, sort of, um, mad to think it's an entire century ago. But I just wanted to loop back to the election itself and have you maybe give us a bit more background on it. Right, because Labour forms its first administration in 24, but it's a minority administration, right? We often think of 45 as the first time Labour really has power, because both in 1924 and then again from 29 to 31, Ramsay MacDonald is prime minister and he's in office, but not really in power. So do you want to talk to us a bit about the dynamics of that first administration, the results of the election and, you know, how the MacDonald government, um, you know, is or isn't in power during the period 1924. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's actually quite crucial to understand that election, I think, for a full um, appreciation of what follows over the next year. Um, so, first of all, a slightly deeper context, uh, most of Ireland had seceded from the UK in late 1922. So the House of Commons is much smaller uh, than, it, than it had been. It's gone from 707 uh, members to around, I, I think, 630. So it's lost a big chunk of members. That's altered the dynamic. There's been an extension in the franchise, the electoral franchise in 1918. Uh, all men uh, aged over 21 have been given the vote at that point, but not all women. Of course, that, that takes a lot longer. But I think women aged over is it 30 and with a property qualification? But nevertheless, there's been a huge expansion in the electorate. Um, and then in 1923, Stanley Baldwin is the prime minister, a conservative prime minister. He wants to change fiscal policy, basically. Um, until that point, uh, the conservatives have been committed to, to free trade. Unemployment after the First World War is still increasing. It's stubbornly high. Baldwin has reached the view that he wants to change to protection, so imperial preference by another name, so prioritising uh, the, the the Dominion markets, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on. He feels bound by his predecessor, Andrew Bonner-Law, the Canadian-born, uh, short, short-lived Prime Minister, not to change policy without going to the country, and so he decides to call a snap election. A lot of his colleagues think he's crazy. He's pretty convinced he's going to increase his already quite significant majority and, and this will be no problem. But actually, come polling day in December 23, uh, the Conservatives are still the largest party, but they lose their majority. They, they slip back. Labour Labour only do modestly well, actually. I think the assumption from a lot of people looking back is that they, they somehow had a huge breakthrough. Their big breakthrough was actually 1922, they increase by a few dozen seats in 23, and the Liberals, who have reunified after a long period of fractious infighting, they also recover to some degree. So you have a very curious sort of three-way split in the House of Commons, uh, which hasn't happened to the same degree since. I mean, more recently, the Lib Dems did quite well, but you know they, they never got beyond 60, 60 seats. Uh, so there's a three-way split. The obvious solution is a Tory Liberal coalition, but those two parties dislike each other. Uh, a previous coalition had broken up in 22. 
that is not an option. Uh, and therefore, the Constitutional Convention kicks in that the king sends for the person next best place to command the confidence of the House of Commons. And that is Ramsay MacDonald as leader of the opposition. I mean, it's almost quaint, really, um, that you've got a p- prime minister with a big majority who decides because they've changed policy, they need a mandate um, and, and and gets an election which they which they don't really need. So I know, I know there's been a lot of speculation about why Baldwin really did it, but it does seem like almost sort of so old fashionedly quaint um, looking back on it. Um, I mean, is it really, Steve, in that, you know, one might argue that the, the problems faced by Theresa May are a consequence of, you know, trying to get a mandate for a major shift in policy and then having that not work out for you. Um, I mean, the size of the the previous um, majority is different, but I'm I'm not sure that that idea is as quaint as it. Um, well, since since 2019, maybe it seems it seems quite quaint. But anyway, um <laughs> David, yeah. what, what, what were you saying? <laughs> I was going to say that uh, one of the challenges uh, researching this period is there's no real opinion polling. I think that doesn't really kick in in a modern form until the 1930s. So I couldn't actually get to the bottom of why Stanley Baldwin was so confident he was going to <laughs> increase his majority. But, but you know, a day before polling, he's telling everyone who will listen that, that they're going to get a three-figure majority. Um, and he's supremely confident. And indeed, the, the result takes not only him by surprise, it takes uh, Ramsay MacDonald by surprise too. The, I mean, what, what did Labour's, what, what was in Labour's manifesto? Because, um, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously get to the sort of the process yeah. by which it gets, it gets, actually gets into government. But did, I mean, what, what was, what was the manifesto? What was Labour's main planks? And did they really expect to be doing anything about them? Did they really expect power? No, um, I think uh, in as much as it had been discussed, they expected on sort of trajectory of, of their vote increasing to maybe be in a position to form a government later in the 1920s, but not at, at that point. The manifesto was extremely short. Uh, that, that, that's another difference from 100 years later. It's, it's, it's literally a few short pages. It's all very uh, pithy and, and quite... Uh, sort of generic, not, not very specific. But there, there were identifiable pledges on, on house building, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Uh, they promised to nationalise uh, the railways and the mines. That, that didn't happen. Uh, the capital levy, uh, basically a wealth tax, was the, the centrepiece of the, the economic agenda. And indeed, the election was pretty much fought along those lines. Baldwin was obviously going for protection. Liberals supported free trade. And Labour's policy was a wealth tax. I think it was on anyone with assets of more than five thousand pounds. That doesn't sound much now, uh, but in but in the early twenties, that that was a significant uh, fortune. Uh, and Labour was committed to free trade at that point, so they 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 actually opposed uh, protection, which again is is a slightly surprising consensus in that period. Um, but yeah, actually, when I came to assess the the first government at the end of the book. The way I did that was by looking at their their manifesto, and my my judgment was that actually they delivered quite a lot of it. And given that they only had 191 MPs to to make clear how minority that minority government was, I thought that was quite a remarkable achievement. Well, I mean, the one thing that you um, haven't spoken about here, David, but that you make the point in your book, if you're looking at the achievements of the 1924 government 
really principally they're in the realm of foreign policy, right? And one of the things they do say they will do, which they do, is they normalize relations with the Soviet Union, which partially brings about their downfall. Um, but I just, one of the things I was thinking about as I read your book that really is notable, because you also discuss the fact they come into power and they've made a big deal in their election campaign about the capital levy, and then they just immediately jettison that as not practical yeah. politics, and they just move on, right? Um, whereas we see the contemporary Labour Party having to really trim its sails because it is inspecting to be in government and doesn't want to make promises or campaign on planks that it can't deliver on, right? Um, whereas... Labour sort of unexpectedly finds itself in government and it has been campaigning on a plank that it clearly can't deliver on. I mean, it's, you know, the Liberals um, are basically backing them vote by vote, right? And they're not yeah. going to vote for large-scale nationalization. They're not going to vote for a large one-off wealth tax. And so yeah. they're working within the constraints of what they can conceivably, you know, get, not their coalition partners, because it's not a coalition, but but the Liberals to back them on a vote-by-vote -vote basis over and maybe you could talk a bit about the the way in which that situation, minority government as opposed to coalition, really does constrain what Ramsey McDonald and his yes, absolutely. cabinet ministers can do. So, so to kick off on the capital levy, again, they take actually a very pragmatic view, and it's it crystallizes immediately after polling day, that their view is that the capital levy has been rejected by the electorate. You know, the, there isn't a majority for that. So it's not... It's, even before they get into the parliamentary arithmetic, their view is that it's not a popular policy. Indeed, McDonald's personal view is that they'd lost a few dozen seats on that basis, that if they hadn't fought the election on the capital levy, they would have done it even better. Uh, so that's gone. But yes, the the dynamic over the next nine, ten months is irredeemably shaped by the fact they have 191 MPs. They can't even, on a lot of divisions, guarantee that all of all of the Labour members or affiliated members will vote with them. The Liberals have said that they not formally support them in a coalition, but, you know, a sort of, it's not even formally confidence to supply, as some people have written it up. The Liberals have basically said that they won't bring them down, although, of course, they, they later do. So they have to approach everything on a vote-by-vote -vote basis, and that, of course, fosters a certain pragmatism in their proposals. So the reason the housing legislation gets through is because by that point, there's a general consensus between all the parties that something has to be done on that. Indeed, previous governments had been trying. So it's relatively non-contentious. It's, it's more a sort of logistical challenge, which John Wheatley, as Minister of Health, approaches brilliantly. But you mentioned foreign affairs. So, of course, MacDonald is Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, which is a, a huge burden. But he is a recognised authority on foreign affairs. He's travelled widely. He's written on, on the subject. He, he knows most of the European uh, leaders uh, personally. And of course, the great benefit of foreign affairs in this era, to a greater extent even than now, is it's largely, uh, in policy terms, it's, it's largely facilitated through the royal prerogative. So it doesn't have a statutory basis. And since it doesn't have a statutory basis, you don't need to worry about Parliament. And of course, that's incredibly convenient when you do not have a majority in the House of Commons. Uh, and indeed, at this point, you, you have a handful of peers in, in the House of Lords. Uh, so the prerogative is Ramsay MacDonald's friend. And this is a bit ironic because uh, he had, of course, made his name uh, to some degree by opposing the First World War, uh, which he viewed as having come about because of secret diplomacy. 
indeed partly because of the the, the prerogative uh, and the the union of democratic control which he was uh, a leading light in along with other members of that first government uh, wanted less of that kind of thing and more parliamentary control of foreign policy but as soon as he gets into office macdonald cools quite quickly on this idea and and i think because uh, for what I identify, that he realises that this is an area in which he can actually achieve things. And indeed he does. Uh, the de jure recognition of the Soviet Union, which you mentioned, it's it's virtually the first act of the, the government in February 24. And then Macdonald's great triumph, the London Conference, where he basically revises the Versailles Treaty, uh, Germany's reparation payments to France, are, are reconfigured, the, the French demilitarize the Ruhr, there's a symbolic handshake between the German Chancellor and the French Premier, uh, and Macdonald is hailed, uh, understandably and deservedly, as, as the preeminent statesman uh, of, of that period. But before before they get actually to start doing anything, you, you, you highlight um, something which I'm assuming contemporaries also um, were fascinated by, which was uh, the propensity or otherwise of Labour cabinet ministers to put on court dress and and all the kind of minutiae and etiquette. Um, and, I mean, do you think that's at all significant? I mean, it's just, you know, it's sometimes, um, you know, a cocked hat is a cocked hat. Did it did it really mean anything? It becomes significant. And, and as I say in the book, it, it comes to symbolise the divide that we've already alluded to between uh, the left of the party and the more moderate leadership. So the the Macdonald view, which shared by most of the senior ministers, was, look, there's a, a dress code for Privy Council meetings, there's a dress code at court if we're with the king, uh, this is just how things are, and in order to demonstrate that we are moderates, we're not crazy uh, Bolsheviks, Bolsheviks uh, we should... Uh, conform to sartorial standards uh, and do what's expected of us. And from that will flow a general impression that we are responsible and can govern. Whereas the John Wheatley view from a lot of, in the ILP, not all of them though, was, look, we, we shouldn't be conforming to, to aristocratic liberal and Tory predecessors. We ought to be delivering for working class voters. That is what we are here for. So, so the dress issue, which rumbles on throughout the whole year and indeed uh, well beyond, uh, is, a, is a byproduct of a, a much broader tension within the party uh, and the movement. But but to be, I mean, McDonald got a lot of flack at the time and since, but he did look very good dressed up, you know, on a, on a, on a purely human level, um, you know, you, you'd actually show off your assets. He was very tall, thin. He had great, you know, grooming uh, and he looked great in a Privy Council outfit. He looked great in top hat and tails. He looked slightly less great uh, in sort of plus fours and tweeds, which was his preferred outfit at Checkers. Um, but he was playing he was playing up to his sort of aesthetic strengths. And that really seemed to annoy some people. Well, we're having this conversation. You guys can hear us on audio, listeners, but we, um, we've got our little video screens. And I can see that David, like Ramsay McDonald, has quite an impressive mustache, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> which helped him as he pulled off this guard. But it is, I mean, in terms of my own um, scholarly research, sort of thinking about 
um, politicians dress and appearance is something that I've, I've looked a lot about, particularly through the lens of gender, right? And early female MPs who really start to come in first through the Labour Party a bit later than um, this period that, that David's written about and, you know, have to think about their dress. But you think about these other moments when it really has been a kind of crisis of thinking about legitimacy, right? In 1997 and the huge cohort of women who come in um, with the labor landslide and, you know, I mean, get sort of tagged as Blair's babes, but need to think about how to self-present when there haven't been many labor women in parliament, right? And how to project legitimacy. Or as I sit here in the U.S. and we... Um, I think about all the debates over John Fetterman, the senior or junior um, senator from Pennsylvania, who has caused such an uproar, you know, with this this Wheatley type mentality, right, of he's there to represent the Pennsylvania working classes and he's this kind of behemoth of a man and shows up in, in shorts and T-shirts and hoodies to, you know, on the Senate floor and legislation has been passed as a consequence because of this outrage about whether this is disrespecting the office. And it's frivolous, you know, and um, on one level, but on one level, it speaks to this this real anxiety, right, in the 1920s about whether or not the Labour Party was just going to emerge as a mass party that would be incorporated into the Constitution and become effectively the second party of the state, right, um, displacing the liberals, or whether they were really fundamentally a threat to the constitutional order, right, and, and dress kind of literally embodies this, right, and... David, do you want to talk about that tension where, which I think is tied to the title, The Wild Men, right? About whether this is just a new party on the scene or whether this is fundamentally a potentially such a disruptive force that, you know, yeah. Britain is, is not going to function the same if there's a labor opposition or a labor government. Yeah. Um, because well, they won't play by the rules. Yeah. And, and actually, it's a point that I don't fully explore in the book, but I've thought more about since. I think in 1923, 1924, it was not necessarily certain that Labour would progress along what was called a constitutional or mainstream route at that point. But by the end of 1924, it was absolutely certain that's what they were going to do. And indeed, I think it's it's either Patrick Hastings, who was Attorney General, or the Solicitor General in the government. In his memoirs, he makes that point that one of the main legacies of that first government was that they ended it firmly on a constitutional path. They were they were much more relaxed about the king in a way that I don't think they were a year earlier. They were surprisingly enthusiastic about the British Empire, which is something we can perhaps get onto. That that really surprised me. Um, and as I say, through conforming to certain dress standards, although they are relaxed by the king, interestingly, to who who is very keen not to embarrass his his new ministers from much more modest uh, backgrounds than than he's used to um yeah so there by by the end of 1924 november it's much more certain and i think everyone including stanley baldwin and the king are breathing a sigh of relief not so much that labor are out of office but that the next time they're in office there will not be the same degree of anxiety there was in late 1923 so you've you've talked about what happened or or the achievements that McDonald could make um, in terms of foreign policy because it wasn't dependent on on votes in the House of Commons. Um, I noticed that um, in in the manifesto, Labour promised it would create a humane and civilized society. That's, that's 
I'm not sure that would test pass many tests these days. Um, lots of journalists would ask questions of Keir Starmer if he was promising that. But what did, in terms of domestic policy, in terms of getting actual legislation through, difficult though it was, what what were the, the concrete achievements, albeit nine, a nine month government, if that? What 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 did Labour change? How far was Britain a more humane and civilized society after that? So housing, I think, is the, the main achievement. And this is, you know, this has been widely acknowledged. Wheatley has had several biographies. Uh, his legislation has been widely assessed. Uh, and his big achievement was basically getting the building industry, the trade unions, bosses, managers, capitalists together and thrashing out a compromise whereby, with Treasury backing, they built what we would now call council housing, so state state housing. Uh, and half a million of those pretty good quality in those days units are built over the next uh, few years and indeed future governments Tory and Labour built on built on that uh, legacy so that's the main one in education it, it was more of a sort of visionary thing instigating uh, what became a consensus around the expansion of of secondary education and it's the terminology is quite confusing secondary education then meant grammar schools uh, and this was a general consensus is that you had selective education at 11, uh, but that that had to expand and it had to be, there had to be more free places uh, and so on. Uh, and Sir Charles Trevelyan, who's an aristocratic liberal turned socialist, is president of the Board of Education as it was then before there's an education ministry. Uh, and he I think he does a pretty good job there uh, with again, not much at his disposal in terms of funding and direct levers. More modestly, you have an expansion of, of the then nascent welfare state, so a, a slight relaxation in, in the eligibility for unemployment benefits uh, and all the rest of it. Um, and that's pretty much it. Their, their, their big failure, and this was perceived at the time, was unemployment. Uh, Labour in opposition had made, uh, made great play of what what they perceived as the failures of liberal and conservative and coalition governments in terms of tackling unemployment. And of course, when they were in office, uh, liberals and Tories said, well, you know, you're in government, what are you going to do about it? And of course, they they quickly discovered that it was actually quite difficult. And they there's a real sense by sort of April, May, that they're coming unstuck on that point. There's such an expectation that a Labour government is going to make great strides in tackling unemployment, uh, that they they sort of fall at the first hurdle in that respect. And this raises question. I mean, I think this context is probably useful for listeners, right? Who tend to think, oh, the depression starts, the collapse of the stock market in in New York in nineteen twenty nine. It's a sort of an October phenomenon, right? But October twenty nine phenomenon, a thirties phenomenon, the depression. But throughout most of the nineteen twenties, the British economy is undergoing a slump, right? And there's already significant levels of unemployment, as you say, it's a key issue. In nineteen twenty three, in that election, it remains a key issue throughout the elections in the twenties. Um, but once the Labour government is in an, in office, if not in power, right, it's it's not clear what can be done about it. But you have this expectation that having gotten rid of these guys who screwed it up before, that this new government is going to change things. And I guess, you know, that's a situation um, and a set of limitations that we can all still feel familiar with, right? There's a sort of plus a chance. But um, 
you know, what are the limits really, or what are the constraints? And I thought your chapter on Philip Snowden, who is the chancellor, was a really great chapter because you emphasize the fact that he's he's basically trapped in the mentality of the 19th century, right? He can't yeah. think himself outside of a box about what is possible for the government to do that really would be something radical and different than what his predecessors had done. And how does that limit what the labor government could potentially achieve in office, do you think? It does limit it. Limits it. And Snowden is fascinating. Um, there's that great quote from Churchill about uh, the Snowden mind and the lizard mind sort of <laughs> or the treasury mind and the, and the snowden mind uh sort of like discovering each other like twin right? like yeah. twin lizards yeah and it's it's because basically snowden was a treasury man and he was a gladstonian man as you as you say he was he was certainly a socialist but his his economics were decidedly orthodox Although, to be fair there, there has been a tendency from some people and this is particularly true of the second labor government is they're criticised for not being Keynesian, but then yeah. of course you know the Keynesian orthodoxy doesn't kick in until later, and so it's it's you know it's it's a bit unfair. But nevertheless, that orthodoxy constrained what they could do. Snowden's overriding uh, aim was to balance the books. You know he he didn't want huge debt. He he, he relishes being able to pay down some of the the national debt uh, as chancellor. Um, he actually cuts taxes again. Uh, this this is a bit of a surprise for for the first uh, Labour uh, Chancellor, but his budget, his first and only budget, is nevertheless seen as a bit of a triumph because it keeps everyone in the house happy. So there's no problem getting the, the finance bill through through the Commons, um, and it has positive effects on the economy, which, as you say, uh, was was sluggish uh, in the wake of the First World War and remains so. Uh, for the for the rest of that that decade, so they're they're very much treading quite carefully. But even even had there been more money, I don't think Snowden would have been spreading it around. There's uh, if you look at if you look at Roy Jenkins' amazing biography of post-war or pre-war chancellors, uh, even Jenkins says that he can't help feeling that if Gladstone had been chancellor in 1924, he would have been a bit looser than Philip Philip Snowden. Uh, you know, there's a real sense that he's he's a bit too tight with the, with, with the purse strings. I mean, you've, that, that's an element of the sort of small C conservatism that's evident in, in the government. You, you mentioned... Um, about it, the attitude towards the empire, but I also wondered, um, in terms of the cultural conservatism, Labour's manifesto promised to bring equality between men and women. So I just wonder what, if anything, was c- could be pointed to that might have advanced that that promise. Yeah, it's not it's not great on that front. Uh, so there's a couple of things. Uh, the first female minister, Margaret Bonfield, she's one of three uh, Labour female Labour MPs elected in the December twenty three election, and she becomes parliamentary secretary at the Ministry of Labour. So, you know, basically an undersecretary, a, a junior minister. It seems there was a move to to appoint her to the cabinet, uh, but for whatever reason that didn't happen, and that has to wait until nineteen twenty nine when she becomes uh, minister of Labour in her own right. But nevertheless, in the context of 1924, this is a big deal. Uh, a woman uh, being a member of any government had never happened before. Um, 
on unemployment, Bonfield is specifically tasked with trying to address uh, female unemployment. She doesn't get very far with that. As I mentioned before, unemployment uh, benefits are freed up to some degree uh, to to address um, that. There is a bill floating around to lower the franchise requirements for for female voters. I think that's William Adamson's bill. He he becomes Scottish uh, secretary, um, but that falls foul of of the parliamentary timetable. There's a, there's a there's a view that there is not enough room or space or support for for that to get through. Um, so no, there's there's not much there. Although actually, thinking back to Snowden's budget, it was billed as the as the as the housewife's budget, uh, some, <laughs> some, something uh, a description you wouldn't get away with a hundred years uh, later. And that was a reference to the fact that he'd he'd removed taxes on a lot of foodstuffs, which would normally be found on a on a working class breakfast uh, table. So yeah, his his budget was very much pitched at women. And I think in the um, dredging up memories now, but in October 24, I looked through a run of copies of, I think it's called Labour Labor Women. It was a, a journal yeah. from, from, yeah. The, from the, the women's movement. Mm. And there is a, a slightly clunky, but nevertheless earnest pitch to, to, to female voters from McDonald, Arthur Henderson and Snowden in the pages of the issue, I think issued just before the, the general election in October. So they, they were conscious of it. Um, even if their record on that front is not particularly impressive. So mentioning um, the October election and the fall of the Labour government, I mean, we started this this podcast by mentioning how little um, the average Labour voter apparently <laughs> you know, still knows about Ramsay McDonald. But do you want to talk to us a bit about how it is that why the government falls? Um, because you kind of painted a fairly rosy picture of what they managed to get done within the constraints of um, of this minority administration, but then um, when they fall, they fall hard. I mean, it's a, a conservative landslide in in October twenty fourth. So, do you want to talk about the end of the? the yeah. So, um, so I, I stand by my point. I think by October, uh, sorry, August September nineteen twenty four, there was a general perception that Labour had done well in office. As I say, there have been the foreign policy uh, triumphs, the budget had been a success, the housing legislation was widely applauded. In as much as you can measure it, as I say, in the absence of opinion polling, the view of even opposition MPs uh, by the summer of 24 was that Labour had done well and that they'd increased support amongst voters. But therein lies, I think, actually the reason for their downfall, because uh, first of all, the Liberal Party, who still aspire to be a party of government, and if not that, the main party of opposition, they're getting nervous about this. They can feel themselves being displaced uh, by Labour. So they decide to move against Labour in Parliament. Uh, this is chiefly Lloyd George, who has become very critical of, of MacDonald. And then from a, another perspective, by this point, the Conservatives feel confident that they, they've rebuilt their party after the, the setback of the previous year. Uh, they've coined what's called they call the new conservatism, you know. So this is this looks ahead to to the new new Labour of, of the nineties, and they have adopted a moderate social socially centric agenda to compete with the sort of voters which Labour are attracting. So they feel confident they can fight an election and return to office. So that is the deep, real reason that that Labour 
falls from office because the two opposition parties at that point want them out and they have the power because of the minority status to make that happen. The pretext is something called the Campbell case, which was, it's very difficult to summarise briefly, <laughs> but it, it was the botched prosecution of a, of a communist journalist called John Campbell, who was from Paisley, who had edited, not written, but edited an article in Workers Weekly, which a was apparently inciting uh, members of the armed forces to, to rise up against the state. This broke the law under an 18th century statute. Sir Patrick Hastings, who is the Labour Attorney General, initially decides to prosecute. He then withdraws the prosecution and the, the cry goes up that he has done this under pressure from uh, Clydesiders, the Independent Labour Party, and from the Communist Party of Great Britain, all of which is confected and largely exaggerated. But all of this plays into the idea that somehow the Labour uh, government is a Trojan horse for, for Bolshevists, for, for Moscow, and for a proper, bloody, violent, 1917-style uh, revolution. The Liberals take up this cry too. It comes from the Daily Mail. It comes from the, the Conservatives. Uh, so that that weakens the government. Uh, Macdonald screws up, he, he misleads Parliament on what, what, what he knew about that prosecution. That leads to a, a vote of censure, so a no-confidence uh, motion. Um, the Liberals try to salvage it by suggesting a, a select committee of inquiry into, into the Campbell case. Uh, Macdonald's very prickly and defensive, he doesn't want to do that, so he says, uh, back me or sack me, basically. And there was also growing unhappiness in this period about the prospect of a, a, a city of London loan to the to the Soviet Union, which was part of the recognition of the USSR and and a trade deal. So there's lots going on, um, but the the censure motion is predicated on the Camel case. But the real reason is that the two opposition parties want Labour gone, um, and then of course all of this dovetails beautifully in the Zinoviev letter, which is the best known aspect of that first government. Uh, and this comes a few days before polling purports to be from Zinoviev, uh, a member of the Comintern, uh, again suggesting that uh, British workers rise up uh, and evoke the Russian Revolution and that, you know, the Labour government will somehow facilitate this. The letter is fake. <laughs> you know, the, the notion that Macdonald is some sort of, you know, uh, sleeper agent for, 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 for Moscow is absurd by, by any measurement. But nevertheless, 1917 is not that long in the past. Um, you know, it, it, it had been covered in the mass media in all its gory uh, detail. And so there is a genuine fear amongst voters in the UK that something similar could happen in the UK. The Tories know this. Uh, they trade on it. The Zinoviev letter very conveniently lands on the desk of the editor of the Daily Mail and the Conservative Central Office. Um, and that that sort of crystallizes that fear and every Labour candidate who's left a record of that campaign says they can feel in those last few days votes slipping away from them and going to, to Stanley Baldwin and going to the to the Conservative Party. So would you, I mean, it's, it's hard to, I mean, most people, most Labour Party people, if they know anything about about that election, about that period, it is the Zinoviev letter. Yeah. It is the fraudulent Zinoviev letter. It is the Daily Mail publishing the Zinoviev letter. And that's what lost Labour the election. And that's why the Conservatives came came roaring back. So you're, you're a bit sceptical about that? 
they, they would have, well, it depends how you define lose the election. Um, Labour entered that election um, quite upbeat. Um, the, their, their party conference coincides with the, the dissolution of Parliament. Macdonald makes a, a rousing speech uh, rallying the troops. They're, they're confident they have a good record. I agree with them as it happens. They think they have a, a case to take to the country. Um, they're not they're not expecting an overall majority that's still out of reach. But I think they thought they could return as a minority government with more MPs, so perhaps, you know, 230, 240 members, and that they could sustain their period in office. Um, so the Zinoviev letter didn't lose them the election. I think the Conservatives would still have, have been the largest party. Um, but it's certainly creates the circumstances for a Tory landslide. But of course, the caveat is that although Labour slips back in terms of MPs, it increases its share of the vote. It adds a million. It adds a million votes to its 1923 tally. So there's there's no broader sense that, you know, they have lost that election. But it, through the prism of first past the post, of course, uh, the Conservatives end up doing a lot better. I mean, in some ways, the real loser of the 1924 election is the Liberal Party, right? Absolutely. Who, um, as you say, is is nervous about the fact that they are ceding the left alternative to Labour. And when you look at the results of the 24 election, you know, I mean, it's a landslide to the Tories. But as you say, the Labour Party increases its share of its vote and the Liberal vote collapses. And effectively, from 24, you have a almost a two-party system, though with the Liberals continuing... Um, you know, <laughs> lurking around in the background, but they never again form a government. So maybe, in a sense, the success of of Ramsey's McDonald's short administration is that it cements Labour as as the alternative government to the Tories, right? That they don't yeah. implode the system. They seem to be respectable and functional in office, and and they come back again five years later, less than five years later in 1929, yeah. and manage to stay in power for two and a half years. So we'll have to wait till the anniversary of 29 for you to write that story, David. Well, it, I mean, as it happens, I'm very, very keen to do that. Uh, but I'll have to wait a few years for, for a good hook. But yes, uh, and actually, um, this wasn't accidental. MacDonald's aim, his main strategic aim in 1923, since 22, actually, when he, when he became leader of the opposition, was to permanently displace the Liberals as the main progressive alternative to the Conservatives. And he achieves that. He gets very little credit for this um, at the time, including from his own party. But he sets out to do that, and he does it. Uh, and and as you say, it's cemented at that point, so that thereafter, no one no one talks of the Liberals uh, achieving office or even opposition. It's Labour. It's going to be Conservatives or Labour. So, I mean, you said um, earlier on that really possibly one of the greatest achievements of, of that government of, of, of Ramsay MacDonald is that by the end of it, it was clear that Labour was now a party of the Constitution, that it was going to take the constitutional route um, into the future. Um, now, there would be some Labour members, and I've, I've read books which have this point of view, which which is that that's not good. That is not a very good idea, really, that Labour became too enmeshed in the Constitution, too conservative, and putting on the cock hats and all the court dress. Macdonald kind of laid a foundation for a kind of a Labourism, a conservative Labourism, yeah. parliamentarism and whatever. So um, I just wonder, what? how should Labour members remember this government? 
I think they should remember it as having having achieved a lot more than it's generally given credit for. As I say, it tends to be boiled down to the to the housing legislation, which is good and true and justified. But I think it goes much beyond that. And I think it's largely because people haven't looked into the detail of it. So uh, they've tended to assume that it didn't didn't do anything. But even if it hadn't done anything, um, the mere fact of its existence was significant for, for the party, more broadly for the country. And there's a great quote from Clement Attlee, who, who looks back uh, from 1937, when, of course, he's, he's leader himself. He'd been a junior minister in that first government. Uh, he's initially quite supportive of MacDonald. I think he's one of many who, by the end of that government, uh, is taking a more critical view. But as Attlee writes, voters cannot believe something they can't see. Uh, and so the, the real utility, as he puts it, of that first government was the fact it took office and held office for nine or ten months and didn't disgrace itself. It it disproved Churchill's uh, wounding charge that it wasn't fit to govern by proving that it could govern not only the UK, but the broader British Empire. I think that is a good note to end on. Um, So everyone, if you don't know much about the 1924 government and you want to learn more, read The Wild Man. Um, It is a wonderfully witty and and rapid read, as well as being an important one, I thought. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.